0: Our Old Testament reading is from the prophet Isaiah. This is chapter 7. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, Is it too little for you to weary mortals that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings... You are now in dread, will be deserted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be to God. Let's pray together. Uh, Holy Spirit, Lord, we uh, bless you and thank you, God, for the gift of the church this morning, that we are here, Lord, together and with you. And we ask you uh, now, Lord, will you help us, God, to make space in our own minds and hearts and lives, Lord, for what it is It do you want to say, What you want to do. Where we, Lord, feel burdened by distractions or weight that we carry or worry. I ask, God, that you give us help and mercy. That you lay a hand of peace on us, Lord. And in a way that only you can, God, will you lift up our eyes and our ears that we would see you, Jesus. Bring us, Lord, to where you are even as we pray, Lord, for you to come. Draw us into your peace and into your joy, into your goodness. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Happy Sunday, y'all. So good to see you and have you uh, here with us um, on this fourth Sunday of Advent and this World Cup Finals Day. Um, If you have loved ones who are at home watching the match, it's fine. Just tell them we talked about them in church. That's all. Um, and if you know the results of the match, um, please, please don't mention it to my husband, who is around here somewhere. We just won't talk about it for the remainder of this time together. Um, I'm thankful for uh, Sundays like today because I feel the call um, to like kind of one of the strangest of it all, the strangeness of it all, to like come and be set apart. Um, the world is like spinning and going about its thing and doing what it always does, and then here we all are, gathered here, um, I don't know, to open our hands like this and ask for God to come to try to hear what God might say or try to make ourselves available to what God might want to do, and I really appreciate that. I feel thankful to get to do that with all of you. Um, made more stranger still by the words that we're called to like reflect on and read together this morning. This like really obscure kind of random part from the book of Isaiah, like tucked away in your Old Testament, buried, you know, in that great big book back there somewhere. It's probably been, I would suspect, a while since you have um, heard this particular passage of Scripture read in church. It's why I love the lectionary. Why? Why? Would this be the text that we're called to reflect on on a Sunday like this, our last uh, Sunday of Advent? It's a good question. We've been reflecting on the words of the prophet throughout the season, um, spending our Advent with the prophet Isaiah. Because Isaiah was a prophet during a time when Israel was called, being called as God's people to wait. Now that's interesting because the book spans a really long period of time. And so Israel was waiting for different things at different points of that period of time. Towards the beginning of the book, we're waiting on what we fear will be impending judgment, something that we're not going to love, something that doesn't feel good. That's what they're waiting on in the beginning of Isaiah. Towards the middle and end, we're waiting on other things, deliverance, restoration. But we're waiting throughout uh, all the same, lots of waiting which is, of course, what makes it such a fitting book for the season. Advent is a season given to waiting. If somebody was to say to you, well, what's Advent about? Um, I don't know what you would say. I'm curious. wish we had time to kind of go around and be like, what is it about? Why have an Advent? Well, we would say, well, we're preparing for Christmas. We're getting ready for it. Well, how? Well, I don't know. We're like embracing waiting. And all of these things we can say And I think the question for us, too, this last Sunday of Advent, our final week, this is the home stretch, is to consider together, regardless of whether we know what to say or not, do we know what to do? Why would the church call us to prepare or to embrace waiting or to try to learn to wait well for Christmas? What difference does it make if you do it or not? And maybe more importantly, then what does it even look like to do? And I would say to you, by the way, if you spent this whole season wondering exactly that and feel like up to now you are an Advent failure, if we're getting grades, you flunked. Um, One, you're not alone, you're in a safe place, and it's just not too late. We have these seven days that stretch before us, and you have an invitation this morning to lean in. What does it mean to wait well? How do we prepare? while we wait. Um, I don't know exactly, but I am intrigued by the idea that there's a difference between just sort of waiting and the kind of waiting that we're meant to do in Advent, which is a like more active, getting ready, expectant kind of waiting. During Advent, I'm meant to prepare for something. So I'm not just sitting in neutral, as it were, but I'm like preparing. That's why we read the words of John the Baptist throughout this season. We talked about this at worship and prayer, by the way, which was incredible. Um, We had a worship and prayer here last week, and we reflected on the words of John the Baptist. To prepare the way of the Lord. Well, what does it mean to both wait and prepare at the same time? One of those would suggest doing sort of nothing. The other seems more active and engaged, and yet that's exactly the kind of waiting that we're meant to do in this season. It's like a leaned-in, expectant kind. What on earth uh, does that look like and mean in my own life? It's with that question in mind that I want to consider the text that we read and the story that the lectionary writers seem to think um, would be helpful to us to reflect on in this final week of Advent. Why this random story tucked away in the book of Isaiah. Well in order to make any sense of it we're gonna need just like a little bit of history a little bit of background. So we're gonna lean in speaking of leaning in and not lean out because I'm about to say things like historical context which is about the time we all tune out, think about lunch but we're not gonna do it because it matters. Yes? All right. Here we go. This is the 8th century So 700 BCE, centuries before the birth of Jesus. Ahaz is the king of Judah. And what's happening around this time is that the the big bad guys, during this particular moment in the 8th century, is not Babylon. Babylon is the one that takes us into exile. This isn't Babylon, this is Assyria. Assyria is the empire of the day. Um, And they are just going about, just gathering up territory like Easter eggs, left and right, taking little territories and little nations like Judah and Israel, just absorbing them in. Huge. Um, And it's pretty brutal. So if you're Judah and if you're Israel, the northern kingdom, you have good reason to fear that you're not going to be able to remain autonomous much longer. So if you back up just a little bit, you remember the kingdom of Israel used to be a united nation, one kingdom under one king. We divided, now we have a northern kingdom and we have a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel, and the southern kingdom is called Judah. This whole united kingdom was the size of Vermont. Huge. You can imagine Vermont, but it ain't big. And then we split, and now most of that territory is Israel. So Judah is within that massive territory, Vermont-like territory, this little bitty baby piece of it. And you've got to try to withstand Assyria. Stranger still, you happen to believe that of all the peoples of the earth and the empires and kingdoms of the earth, that God has set his unique purposes and promises on this teeny tiny mustard seed of a territory that is Judah. He's promised to protect it and preserve it. And your has, and this is your king of the mustard seed. It's a bad time because Assyria is pressing in, and the northern kingdom gets freaked out and decides that the only way that they're going to be able to withstand Assyria is if they form an alliance with another kingdom called Aram. It doesn't really matter, but they're going to team up. And these northern Israel and now this other territory, this other nation, they formed an alliance and they're coming after Ahaz. They want to kill him and replace him with a puppet king who will join this alliance because Ahaz has resisted. And they need somebody who wants to go along with their plan. So Ahaz is utterly freaked out. He's under siege. Everywhere he turns, Assyria to the left, Israel and Aram to the right. And it's in his moment of, well, just listen to the way that the Bible describes it. The Bible describes it like this. When the house of David, that's Ahaz, heard that Aram had aligned itself with Israel, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. He's afraid. And that's when Isaiah the prophet shows up. That's when the word of God comes. Isaiah's panicked and the prophet comes to him. God sends his word, but Isaiah's not alone. Isaiah brings his son, and his son's name is a remnant shall return, in Hebrew, of course. A remnant shall return is the name of Isaiah's son. Isaiah's kids had some pretty metal names. <laughs> um, this was the most hopeful of them, just to say it. Uh, and so, can you imagine, you're Ahaz, and here comes the prophet. Good news, but the prophet has clearly brought along his son, which... His name, I don't know, less sure it's good news. A remnant shall return. Well, I don't want a remnant. I want the whole thing. And I don't, I don't want to return. I want to stay, you know? So is it good news or is it bad news? Isaiah doesn't say. What he does say is this plot, this alliance will not stand. You, Ahaz, must stand firm in your faith or you will not stand at all. That's what he says to him. Stand firm in your faith or you will not stand at all. And then he says, Hear, O house of David. Who's David? Do we remember? King David? What do we know about him? Not the bad stuff. We always go to the bad stuff first. How we remember everybody. King David was the king after God's own heart, the king of the united monarchy, the promised one, the little shepherd boy who takes down Goliath. And God sets his affections on David and he says, David, I want you to rule here on this throne forever, and I'm going to protect your throne forever. So now Isaiah is saying to Ahaz, this king in David's line, hear, O house of David. In other words, In this moment, when you are so afraid, I am gonna remind you and help you remember who you are. You're not Ahaz, the one who shakes like a leaf in the wind. You belong to the house of David. And now I want you to hear what I have to say. You can't go forming an alliance with them. You have to stay strong. In other words, What God is going to do is and isn't about you. Because you'll notice what Isaiah doesn't say. He doesn't say, Ahaz, you have nothing to worry about. I'm going to protect you and protect this kingdom, and it's all going to work out exactly like you want. So you have nothing to fear. It's all going to work exactly as you want. He doesn't say that. He brings his son along, which says a remnant will return. So it is a hopeful word. It is a promise. I don't know that it's the one that Ahaz would have asked for, though. So rather than saying exactly what Ahaz wants to hear, what the prophet does instead is zoom out and connect Ahaz when he's afraid to a bigger story. And this is where, y'all, what does any of that have to do with Advent? (laughs) Why does that matter? Because I think one of the things that the text is trying to get us to hear, trying to say that maybe this moment is trying to get us to hear, is while we are waiting, and Ahaz had to wait, he did not know how this was all going to work out. He was in the midst of a thing where the outcome was uncertain. It wasn't in hand. The best he could do, and the thing he has to do, is stand firm. Be still. Wait. What does it mean to wait well is the question. And the prophet comes and says, the way that you're going to prepare, the way that you can wait well, is to stand firm with some hope and some courage. And the way I'm going to give that to you is by connecting you to a bigger story. In other words, your life, who you are, what God is doing through you, is about you and this moment, but this moment is connected to something much bigger than you and this moment. And I think that there is something instructive in that for us, what it means to be a courageous person, a hopeful person. When I feel under siege, pressed in on all sides, terrified and out of control of outcomes, the prophet comes along and says, I'm going to need you to hear me, O house of David. Zoom out a little bit. Remember that your life is connected to a much bigger story, a much bigger promise. And this moment is one moment in that story. And God's promises and his faithfulness to you is sure. It's not up for grabs. His commitment to this story and where it's headed, not up for grabs. So take heart, stand firm in faith. That's different than standing firm with the assurance of what's going to happen. Do you know what I mean? That's not hard. If you're Assyria, you stand firm because you're Assyria and you have big muscles. (laughs) You have bigger muscles than all the other little muscles. So where's your confidence, O Assyria? It's in my muscles, which are bigger than your muscles. And we all want that kind of firmness. You just can't call it faith, really. It's not. And it's not wrong to want or need that kind of reassurance. That's a very human thing. But what happens when your muscles aren't as big as Assyria's? You know, what are you gonna do? And the prophet comes along to say, you can totally freak out, you can panic. You can be sure that failure is the result If you don't run and seek shelter elsewhere, or you can remember who God is, you can remember your faith, you can remember that God is doing something bigger than what you can see, that ultimately His muscles are the biggest, and you belong to Him. It reminds me of John the Baptist. We read about John the Baptist last week. Um... I'm a big John the Baptist fan, which for those of you who know me will surprise you, not at all. Um, I can't exactly say why. Um, Maybe it's because he was a hothead, but I think mostly it's because for all of his fire, um, it's the tenderness and his affection for Jesus that gets me the most about who John was. How do you be that bold, that passionate, and that tender all at the same time? What a gift. Last week we read about John's moment of freaking out. He had his Ahaz moment. He was in prison. And he panics and he tells his disciples to go to Jesus, go find him and ask him, what is going on, man? What gives? Are you the Messiah or, and I love it, the passive aggressiveness, or should we expect someone else? In other words, you doing this or no? No. We go with somebody else. And Jesus, without missing a beat, he says, you go tell John. Go and tell John. The blind have regained their sight. The lame are being healed. The dead are being raised. You go tell John that I'm bringing my kingdom, my kingdom, the one that I intend to build, my vision. You go and tell John that. You know what Jesus doesn't say? And tell John, I'm coming for him. I'm coming to get him out. Because you know that's probably in the back of his mind. You're just going to leave me in here, I guess? What gives? Why am I in here and you're doing nothing out there? What gives? And to reassure John, Jesus does it in the same way that Isaiah comes to reassure Ahaz He connects John's vision. He expands it. He helps him see what God is doing, but he doesn't say he's going to do the thing John hopes he'll do. I don't know what John hoped for. Ultimately, maybe he wasn't thinking about getting out at all. Here's the thing I think I know about John, even though I didn't know him personally. And I think Jesus knows this about John. The thing that John was most afraid of was not dying in prison or being executed. People like John are not afraid of dying. You know what John was afraid of? John was afraid of missing it. He was afraid that he would get the Messiah wrong. He was afraid that God, he wouldn't get to see God do the thing that he had been hoping for. He was afraid that Jesus might not be the guy he thought, that his vision, that what he hoped for wasn't the right thing. And so Jesus reassures John by saying, John, it's okay. You're not wrong. God is at work. I am building a kingdom. It's just my kingdom. I'm doing my vision in the world. It's not yours. It's different. And I think that reassured John. What gave him comfort, in other words, was not the knowledge that his circumstance was going to change, but that God was doing the thing that he hoped God would do in the world. And y'all, there's something about that that is so good, important, and true for us. What does it mean to wait well in the season of Advent practically for you? We all have our individual things, our own circumstances, ways that you could answer the question. But here's what I know is true for all of us. Your life has to be your perspective, attention's affection connected to something that is bigger than you and your moment. Or when your moment isn't going well, it will knock your legs out from under you. Do you know what I mean? Your circumstances will constantly dictate and drive how you feel and how you respond. So in moments when we feel distressed or worried or anxious, I think what the Bible has come to say is if you want out of that, if you want to have hope and courage to stand firm, you're going to have to lift up your eyes and look at a bigger story. The way the psalmist says it is set your hope on Jerusalem. I have started praying with the psalmist that God would make and set Jerusalem as my highest joy. Now, that may sound like a terribly preachery thing to say to you, but here's what it means practically. Jerusalem in the Bible is shorthand for God's vision, his dream, what he wants for the world. And so when the psalmist says, I've set Jerusalem as my highest joy, what the psalmist means is I am putting my affection, my attention, my energies And I'm aiming them towards God's dream, his vision for the world. So that when I am in a low place or a valley or a hard place, I can look up and remember this vision, that I'm a part of a bigger story. And that can give me hope, can give me strength. So what that means practically is that the question is, are you able to do that? Do you know anything about Jerusalem? Meaning, do you know anything about what God hopes for the world? What his dream is, his vision is, what he's trying to do around you. Are you thinking about it and reflecting on it? Because here's what happened for John. Because that was his primary vision, it made him bold. It gave him courage. It made him good. Do you know what I mean? Assyria has a vision. The empire always has a vision for your life, and it's all about you. It's the way they hook us. Your own happiness, your own wants, making sure that you're comforted and you're okay. The wonderful thing is God also cares about you and your life individually. But your life is connected to a bigger story, something he's doing in the world. And so when I am down and my circumstances aren't exactly as I want them to be, maybe the prophet has come to us to say, Hear, O house of David. You're a part of something bigger. A story that God is telling that might not make sense to you today, in this moment. But you're going to take from that vision of what you know God is wanting to do in the world and choose to be good, choose to be faithful, choose to be a person of peace, a person of generosity, a person of kindness. Rejoice, rejoice. O people of Israel, all throughout this season we've put ourselves in this story so we can be reminded that we're a part of something bigger than us. That God is coming. He has come. So as a practice, in these next seven days, if I was you, I would spend time reminding yourself of what God wants to do in the world, what this is all about. And the best way to do that is to spend time with your Bible. Spend time with Jesus. Mark time these next seven days with him. Let him lift up your eyes, connect it to something bigger, connect you to something bigger. That's what I hope for. I've thought many times about John's final moments. You know, before they came to cut his head off, which is what happens. You just can't intimidate somebody like John the Baptist. You just can't. You can't make him run. You can't make him lose hope. All he ever wanted was to see Jesus come. It was for God's vision to be fulfilled in the world. It's all he wanted. And so if I want to be somebody who won't run, can be a person of peace and hope that's instructive to me. You can't intimidate us because all we want is to see Jesus. We get that either way. Go. You know. And if that sounds to you like a daydream or something that can only be true for somebody like John the Baptist, then 2023 can be for you the year when you learn what it means to stand firm in faith. Jesus is going to look at you and say, it's okay if you can't believe that today, but will you follow me into this new year and let me teach you what it means to have faith so you don't have to run? May it be so, Lord. Holy Spirit, help us now to pray. Jesus. Jesus. We look to you, Lord. Draw us, Lord, into what you're doing all around us. Give us, Lord, your vision, your heart. For God so loved the world that you sent your Son. Give us, Lord, your love. In Jesus' name, amen.